1: there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me today. I just finished talking with Seth Jacobowitz about a really great new book that he just wrote called Writing Technology in Meiji, Japan, a media history of modern Japanese literature and visual culture. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2015. Now, as you probably are gathering from the title, it's a very interdisciplinary book that brings together literary studies, Japanese literature, Japanese history, art history, um, and also media studies into a story of the introduction, the transformation, the translation, the study of and the work with shorthand in modern Japan. And it takes us into technologies of shorthand, um, kind of adaptations of shorthand, and also the resonances of shorthand for in all kinds of ways, for modern Japanese literature. It also really beautifully kind of touches on art history. Um, you'll hear musical resonances. You'll hear resonances that speak to disability studies, to colonial studies. There's all kinds of ways that the works that Seth has kind of picked out and sh- uh, shown a light on for us really open up uh, lots of questions and really interesting ways of thinking about issues and items in a lot of different intersecting and perhaps not so intersecting before this field. So I'll leave you with that. Um, it's a really fascinating study and you'll also hear um, in the conversation to come that it's a study that was very deeply inspired by the work of Friedrich Kittler. So for those of you who are interested in media studies specifically, you might listen for kind of threads of that throughout the interview and definitely try to get your hands on a copy of the book and pick it up and read for that, because it's really interesting in terms of a contribution to that literature as well. Okay, and with that, I will leave you to it, and I'll just say thanks as ever for joining us at the channel. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Seth Jacobowitz about his new book, Writing Technology in Meiji, Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Seth, and... Thanks for making the time, and thanks also for writing a really, really fascinating book for us to talk about today. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about my book.
1: So, Seth, let's start at the huge beginning, which is traditional for the channel. How did you come to work on Japan? What brought you to not just the study of Japan, but this particular period of Japanese history?
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, it's a good question. I always like to joke that I wanted to be a ninja when I was a little kid, but then I found out the health benefits weren't so good. Um, I initially was an English major in college, and I had wanted to work on Japan. It just happened that I was—I sort of allowed myself to be dissuaded. You know, people would say, oh, you can't learn Japanese. It's impossible. And um, I finally started in my uh, junior year. Of college, and I went on a program through Princeton University to um, to Kanazawa, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and that kind of got me started. It was a homestay and intensive language program, and I went to Japan, and I really loved it. And it was sort of the um, for me at least the natural convergence of my interest in literature. I was in English literature, because at the time that was the only language I really could speak, and Japanese. So I kind of merged the two together. And um, as an English major, I was primarily interested in the same period that this book deals with, so kind of Victorian, Edwardian period. And I think that that um, knowledge of English literature uh, and the sort of sensibilities of what I had learned as an undergraduate did in some way kind of filter into my um, uh, ideas about Meiji-era Japan. So I think some of that is, in a very roundabout way, reflected in the book. Great.
1: So what I'll do is just lay a little bit of a foundation for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to come to the book, and then I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about how you came to this topic. So among other things, the book really pays a lot of attention to the nature, um, the context, and the consequences of the introduction of shorthand to Japan. And you lay this out in the introduction. Initially, it was used um, and introduced uh, in the words of the book for recording political speeches and the conduct of the state. But by the mid-1880s, it became used for other things. It was used to transcribe popular theatrical storytelling. It enabled a kind of vernacular writing, um, as you put it in the book that was the forerunner of something that we'll talk about, um, the unification of speech and writing, or the unified style. And we'll talk about that in the conversation to come. And the chapters of the book kind of integrate this into a number of other really kind of major developments in um, in, in a broader story of media and Meiji, so Meiji media landscape. These include standardization movements, They include the emergence of new kinds of telecommunication systems, like telegraphy, um, the postal system as well, national language and script reform, and new literary styles of realism that emerged out of these media technologies. So it's a fascinating study. There are all kinds of ways that it brings together media studies and literary studies and history in really, really interesting ways. So, Seth, how did you come to this particular topic? What brought you to I'll kind of focus on media studies specifically, and this particular way into media studies in Meiji Japan.
0: So it it came about in a very roundabout way. Um, before I started my graduate work at Cornell University in the late nineteen nineties, I did a Fulbright fellowship. Uh, in Nagoya University, working with uh, an excellent professor, Tsuboy Hideto, who's now at uh, Nichibunkan, the Center for Japanese uh, Literary Research. And I was looking at the time at, at Meiji-era representations of landscape and the uh, origins of realism and naturalism, and I kept running across this catchphrase, which in English, um, it appears you know, throughout my book, um which in English is translated as something like, to write things down just as they are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, the, the story about shorthand and its relationship to this unified style, which in the Meiji era was really just a literary style, one of many uh, competing literary styles. There were, of course, a profusion of... Uh, spoken uh forms of Japanese, uh, not only dialects, men and women's speech being very different, and so forth as well. But um in any case, I came across this catchphrase in the context of shorthand as well. And the shorthand writers would say also um you know to write things down just as they are, to make a kind of perfect um manual reporting. This is, of course, prior to the, um, not invention of the gramophone, but the widespread adoption of mechanical recording technology. So um, what was so interesting there, and it did become a kind of forensic project of you know, um, trying to figure out who said what first, was that the shorthand writers came first, that their use of this catchphrase which was also I should point out used by artists who were learning sketching. they were you know um, people like the uh, Italian artist Antonio Fontanesi was brought to Japan to teach a new generation of Meiji youth uh, Western techniques of, of drawing and draftsmanship and the like and so I was starting to uh, sort of forensically connect the dots and what had initially seemed to be, a fairly technical uh, uh, reference to old or even dead media. uh, In in fact, yielded this very rich archival history, and there were more and more connections. So as I followed that paper trail, I became increasingly interested in the broader implications for shorthand as a form of media. Uh, And by media, I mean not only sort of machines, mechanical uh, uh, apparatuses, but also the different manual techniques for writing. So the title of the book, Writing Technology in Meiji Japan, was sort of meant to be read both ways, as literal, um, you know, the noun, writing technologies, but also writing about technology. And, um, you know, from there, I, as you pointed out in that very uh, concise uh, summary, I started to look at all kinds of things that seem, perhaps at first glance, to have no connection. So experimental phonetic scripts, the recording of uh, um, not only political speech, but also of uh, theatrical storytelling, the genres known as Rakugo and Kodan. And, um, of course, there are parts of my book that deal with things like art history and the rise of the modern novel, And I started to see these very intricate connections. So, again, it was sort of trying to connect the dots, and improbably enough shorthand notation seemed to be at the heart of that enterprise.
1: There's also a cat, and there's noses, and there's cherry blossoms, and all kinds of cool stuff that we'll get to (laughs) at the end. Um, So, yes, I, I, I really love that stuff. So, Seth, can you talk a little bit about how you transform this from a dissertation to a book? in that transformation? Like, were there any major or noteworthy um, changes to the project? Like, how did the transformation from one kind of object to the other kind of object go?
0: Yeah, you know, it it begins with a uh, hot air, a hot air balloon, and it ends with a uh, hip hop uh, record scratching cat. So, That's great. Uh, you know, the little bit of my uh, uh, rebellious graduate student was at work there um, from the get-go. It's it's a very interesting question. There's a long gestation here. I finished my dissertation in 2006, and the book came out in 2015. Um, you know, it's always sort of painful to, to show your work at, at that stage. You know, my, my, most people are sort of traumatized by their dissertation. <laughs>
1: yes. don't,
0: don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yes. um, there was, you know, and, and to be honest, there was a time when I just didn't want to look at this project. Of and course. I moved on to other things. So I worked on a, a, a translation of Edo Rampo that became the Edo Rampo Reader. It came out in 2008. And I also started to learn Portuguese and go to Brazil. And really, I think people must have thought I went off the deep end. But um, I'm now working on my next book project, which is about the Japanese immigration to Brazil. I can talk about that if we have time, maybe later in the hour. But um, the the dissertation was really a, a kind of unwieldy and in some ways unbalanced uh, uh, um, creation. You know, I think my first chapter in the dissertation had 75 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a part of this that really needed judicious editing and whittling down. Um, I had sort of five mega chapters. Those became 10, hopefully shorter, more concise and easy to read chapters in the in the book. Um, some of the material from that dissertation's first chapter was spun off and really adapted in a completely different direction into an article from Academia, which I published about uh, mechanical and artificial man in Meiji literature. And in that in that particular case, I was thinking about Japanese science fiction, which is another interest of mine, and the preponderance of you know, robots and androids and, and, and uh, the like, and and the seeming lack of precedence for them in literature before uh, the 1920s, 1930s. So I was really going back to some of the Meiji literature and visual culture of my first chapter of my dissertation and trying to tease out some of these references to where Human beings are described as being machine-like uh, or artificial or something like that and um, trying to reconstruct kind of prehistory. So I really tried to, as productively and imaginatively as possible, take some of that material and put it in a different place um, and refocalize for the book on the questions of media history that, as I was just saying, sort of lead in the direction of shorthand in turn, leading towards the rise of the modern novel. Mm -hmm. Um, But also to, um, you know, just make the book a little bit more, um, again, there are 10 chapters, it moves in a lot of different directions, as best as I could make it a little bit more streamlined so that the reader wasn't sort of constantly having to juggle, you know, 10 10 ideas at once to keep the thread.
1: Mm -hmm. And. The introduction to the book mentions, um, just super briefly, the importance of Friedrich Hitler to what's going on in the book. Was that there from the beginning of the project? Like, was that in the dissertation as well, or is that it, something that came in?
0: Yes, it was. So I think, I think it's in, I'm going to flip the book open just to make sure I remember what I've done here. It's in the in the uh, acknowledgments, actually, that I say uh, that I first conceived this project while visiting Tokyo in the summer of 1999. Mm-hmm on a pre-dissertation research grant. Um, I had completed my master's thesis on postmodernism in contemporary Japanese literature, specifically uh, dealing with the author Abe Kazushige. He went on to win the Akutagawa Prize, and now he's you know, one of sort of the leading, uh, maybe not so young, but leading authors of his generation. Um, I had uh, translated one of his novels called Individual Projection. Um, I was not done with the translation at that point, but I went and I met with his editor at uh, Shinchosha, one of the major publishing houses, uh, a man named Yano Yutaka. And he was very gracious. He invited me to his home in Hiro, a kind of posh neighborhood in Tokyo. And we just sat uh, talking for hours and hours. And um, I was telling him about some of my ideas for, Uh, what I wanted to work on for my dissertation. And the question of media came up and he said, oh, have you ever heard of this German scholar Friedrich Kittler? And of course I hadn't. And he said, well, you have to read this book that just came out. Um, it was just published coincidentally in Japanese as well as English. And this was his book, gramophone film typewriter, Mm -hmm. which had been published in Germany, you know, 1986, I think if my memory serves, um, When I came back to the United States from that short trip, I immediately got a copy and I read it and I was absolutely hooked. And I saw in Kittler's approach, you know, sort of taking Foucaultian discourse analysis and going one step further uh, as Kittler and his um, disciples, maybe I can count myself one of them, uh, would have it going beyond the monopoly of print, look at other forms of media Okay, so um, unlike Hitler in that book, where he really looked at sort of three dominant forms—again, uh, the gramophone, uh, film, and the typewriter—I tried to go much deeper and look at these things like shorthand, which Kittler talks about. He has an essay uh, on Dracula where he talks about Jonathan Harker uh, writing to his uh, fiance, who then becomes his wife, in uh, in shorthand. Uh, which infuriates Dracula because he can't read it. (laughs) Um, in any case, um, I saw so many parallels between, you know, the German or the English case and Meiji Japan. And I, of course there's some fundamental differences too, but that inspiration and in some way that template really, um, you know, got me rolling, got, got my project rolling. And, um, I'm not necessarily uncritical of aspects of Kitler's work. I think we always have to be. And I try as much as possible to make, th- you know, I tried to make this my own methodology, not simply kind of a slavish imitation of his, own, uh, of his, but uh, yeah, Kittler was a hugely important component in the conceptualization of the project. And I'll just say, you know, very briefly, there are these um, incredibly obscure references that I would find in his other sort of magnum opus, which is translated into English as discourse networks, 1800, 1900 references to Pestalozianism as a form of, um, of, of um, national education in, 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 Germany and central Europe. And then I would start to see these references cropping up in the things I was looking at. Um, Japanese intellectuals being sent to schools in the, in the Northeast of the United States and learning Pestalozian methods, <laughs> And I thought, wow, uh, you know, I would never have even known what I would never even have thought to look that up if I hadn't known that Kitler had already done it. Mm-hmm. So in many unpredictable ways, you know, Kittler, uh sort of proved his worth not only as a theorist, but also as an archivist, as a literary uh, historian, uh, intellectual historian. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very indebted to his work. And I think, you know, since... I completed this as a dissertation, uh, you know, a decade or so ago. Hitler's, uh, uh, you know, sadly he passed away a few years ago, but his um, reputation has only kind of solidified and, and increased over the years. Mm-hmm. And I should say in Japan as well as in the United States.
1: Thank you so much for laying that out for us. So let's dive right into the book. Um, there are four parts, and what we're going to do is not necessarily um, talk substantively about all the chapters, but at least talk about some of the really interesting things that are happening in each one of the parts. So part one of the book looks at Meiji media in a kind of general sense, and there's a chapter that we won't talk um, too much about that looks very closely at standardization movements of the late 19th century. Um, These include temporal standardizations, both before and with the Primarinian Convention, Uh, And it also includes the uh, descriptions of um, and the introduction of the metric system, both in Japan and outside of Japan. Now, these are important, uh, as this chapter mentions, insofar as they helped consolidate Japanese national identity and also contributed to what you call here in the book um, a new metrics of national imperial time and space. And so there's a really interesting chapter that does that work. And so I wanted to just kind of mark that for listeners. The second chapter after that looks specifically at the telegraph and postal networks that spread from the capital in Tokyo all the way out through the Japanese Empire in East Asia and beyond. The chapter focuses on a particular figure. This is Meijima Hisoka, and he is really interesting here in the way that he's proposing certain kinds of reform to move away from Chinese characters, and these become really important in sparking larger debates about national language and script reform. So to kind of bring us into this part of the book, uh, can you introduce him a little bit for us? Who is he? And what do we need to understand about him in order to understand what you think is most important in terms of his work for the larger um, story that this part of the book is telling?
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that really great introduction to those chapters. Um, Maejima is a fascinating figure. And for those of us, who um, you know are trained in just modern Japanese literature. His name comes up as the first scholar still in the in the late Tokugawa period who wrote a a, a kind of short polemic, which was submitted to you know his superiors in the school where he taught um, for. The school where he taught, pertaining to foreign studies, and he proposed that uh, Japan eliminate Chinese characters. Now, as the story famously goes, and this is a kind of recurring motif with other reformers that I mention in the book, uh, you know, it was duly ignored, and you know, um, only republished after the Meiji uh, Restoration in the in the early 1870s. But maejima was someone who had a very successful prolific career, and um you know outside of literary studies, he's best known as Japan's first postmaster general who really instituted the the um, institutional reforms that created a modern postal infrastructure not only in the Japanese archipelago, sort of Japan proper, but increasingly you know being distributed throughout its burgeoning empire. So, um, as I try to point out in the chapter you mentioned, uh, Maejima created a postal newspaper. He, um, hired a lot of the shorthand reporters, his editor, uh, Yano Fumio, who went by the pen name, uh, was, uh, someone who wrote one of the first political novels. And in fact, uh, did so by, um, Dictating the uh, two volumes of of the uh, novel to shorthand reporters who then transcribed it. So there were these really tremendously fascinating, even radical reforms that uh, that take place. You know, thanks to Maya Juma. And I guess what I would emphasize is that while that first chapter that dealt with different standardization movements was trying to think about the broader general or even universalistic conditions under which um, sort of the modern world begins to take shape nations in an international framework of conventions uh, doing things in, in increasingly uh, if not homogenized then at least uh, you know standardized ways and then the chapters dealing with Telegraph and Post and Mayajima trying to look at the way that the materiality of writing, is standardized and distributed uh, you know throughout Japan in ways that are also being done more or less concurrently and not so much uh, in advance in the West. That is to say, I, I, I'm, I'm at pains throughout the book to, to insist that Japan was not, as proponents of modernization theory would have it, you know, simply trying to catch up to the West. Uh, there are cases where Japan was uh, a little bit behind, in terms of things like um, the construction of railroads, behind, let's say, compared to England or the United States, uh, but not necessarily so much uh, compared to other European nations. But certainly, many of the language reforms and other developments that I talk about in my book, including the you know the rise of the postal network, uh, were mostly, let's say, more or less concurrent with developments that were happening in North America and in um, Western Europe. So, you know, that was the piece of the puzzle that I think Maya Juma serves to, uh, you know, help uh, clarify.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And I think kind of emphasizing the importance of the materiality of writing um, is really important here, and this comes through in the rest of this part of the book. Um, so not only does it come through, in some really interesting attention in this chapter to semaphore, to singing, right, the, the post-box song, and you talk about the um, sort of songs about the postal system and the way that they imbricate the postal system with the nation-state. There's also a chapter that comes after this, which um, I'll just kind of mention and then we'll move on from, just so that we can get to the other parts of the book. Sure. Um, that really beautifully looks at two major works in, insofar as they depict the power of the written word within a distinctly national space. And this becomes very materialized. Um, uh, in the one case in the woodblock print in which we can see words and paper that are kind of on the wind escaping state systems, and then in a kabuki play where the um, kind of establishment and enforcement of the state and of state power is very much connected to not only telegraphy but also the, the newspaper and that way of materializing writing. So there's a lot of attention Um, uh, really beautiful attention, I think, to the materiality of language and of writing in this part of the book. Now, as we move um, to part two of the book, this is a part of the book called Scripting National Language. And this part looks at, and here uh, I'm going to give the words of the book, the centrality of experimental phonetic scripts and the rethinking of conventional scripts in debates over national language and script reform. So the first chapter Um, begins with Mori Arinori, who thought a national script and language based on English offered um, what you call in the book the most expedient expedient means of inculcating Japanese national identity and competing head-to-head with the Western powers. Now, one of the things that happens here in this chapter, chapter 4, is you bring up the idea of the hieroglyphic nature of script. And interestingly here, his proposal... Um, is sort of trying to get away from the hieroglyphic nature of English spelling. Okay, so let's talk about him a little bit, sort of what's going on in here in terms of the centrality of hieroglyphics to um, what's happening in this chapter, and for you, what's most important for us to understand about what's happening here.
0: Sure. Well, you know, it it doesn't perhaps get as much um, emphasis as it should, In the book, but uh, interestingly enough, the decoding of hieroglyphics with the uh, discovery of the Rosetta Stone really um, goes far in this period to shape the way which um, intellectuals, Western intellectuals, are thinking about phonetics versus um, figural or ideographic, sometimes they call them pictographic writing. And, you know, we see this, surprisingly enough, you know, filtering into the Japanese context as well. Um, at the same time, we have these language reform movements. Isaac Pittman, who is the progenitor of this first truly phonetic shorthand, was also someone who was very influential in the uh, creation of the uh, International Phonetic Association and um, a sort of avid uh, proponent of reforming English. One of the interesting things that I found in looking at Japanese efforts to create a national language and script, which would, again, in the language of this catchphrase, like write things down just as they are, they would often say, to write as one speaks and to speak as one writes. So to create the commensurability between speech and writing. And um, very often folks like Pittman would say English is not, uh, uh, George Bernard Shaw is another figure mentioned in the book who says this as well, right? Um, English is not written as, as it is spoken, nor as it spoken as it is written. So they would, um, repeat this, uh, uh critique that English in its own, uh, uh, spelling systems was kind of hieroglyphic too. So this is something that Maury, um, Uh, says in his own sort of radical polemic where he proposes that Japan, uh, this is post-Meiji Restoration, that that Japan adopt as its national language a simplified version of English. Mm -hmm. And as I point out in my argument, um, this simplification argument was really also an argument for the standardization of national language so that while Mori was ridiculed and, uh, rebuffed, uh, for his proposal, many of the things that happen within the context of what we would call, you know, purely Japanese language. So Chinese characters, Kana and so forth, uh, those kind of standardizations do in fact take place at least following the spirit, if not precisely the substance of what Mori was proposing. The, 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 second point of that argument that I make, which I think had been missed by most of the scholars in the field is that Maury's proposal was written in English and addressed to a primarily English speaking American audience. Uh, he was first ambassador for the, for the Meiji state to the United States. And he appealed to scholars like, uh, DW Whitney, who was a, a, a linguistics professor at Yale. Um, to try to, to garner support for his proposal. And just going one step further, um, I try to point out that Maury's arguments, however crazy they may have seemed to contemporary uh, contemporaneous audiences or, or to contemporary audiences for that matter, uh, in fact had a lot to do with things that were being said a generation or so earlier by American revolutionaries, American uh, um, patriots. Benjamin Franklin had proposed his own reforms to the English language. Um, uh, Webster, uh, you know, uh, in his dictionary, Noah Webster makes comments that I found fascinating about how America should adopt its own American language that would be sort of consistent with its adoption of an American constitution. This is, you know, maybe, you know, a hundred years before Maury was certainly in, it's in that spirit, I think, that Maury was, you know, perhaps better informed about American history than many of us are today. And uh, once we restore those contexts, the things he was saying sound quite reasonable. And it's surprising that I'm sure it was deeply disappointing to Maury that when he approached an American audience who he thought would be primed for these kind of arguments, they, you know, just didn't get it.
1: Mm-hmm. So this is really interesting, and you um, brought up already Pittman, right? And, and Chapter yeah. 5 specifically, again, just to kind of mark this for listeners, Chapter 5 really looks very closely at Pittman's shorthand phonography, and it looks specifically at the way that that shorthand phonography was adapted and used um, by a particular scholar and his disciples in Japan. Now, they created a modified system that the book calls verbal photography, which is really, really interesting for lots of reasons, but in part because you talk here, and this is just totally idiosyncratic, just because this is something that I'm just really interested in. You talk about the importance of shorthand, um, in part as it involved a kind of body work, right, a kind of bodily discipline, and a need to train the ear. And so I think it's really interesting here, the way you're bringing in um, sort of the importance of bodily practice to what shorthand is doing. It's not just about hearing. It's not just about writing. It's about using the body in a very particular way. Right. So I thought that was really cool. Um, So this part of the book, part two, um, goes into a lot of detail um, with regard to this. It's really fascinating And it takes us into chapter six, which is another example of a system that's developed and then kind of adapted and translated and modified in Japan. This is a system um, developed by Alexander Melville Bell in a work called Visible Speech. Um, Now, this is really, really interesting and seems important. So let's talk a little bit about it. For listeners, can you talk about what you take to be most kind of some of the most important aspects? Of Bell's system, yeah. and um, how was that adapted by Isawa in Japan? And, and what's important about that adaptation for the larger arguments you're making here?
0: Sure. Well, you know, in a kind of, it, it really isn't superficial. But you know, I, I wanted to say on that kind of superficial level of thinking about Japan having to catch up to the West, or or you know, the frequent. Um, Admonitions that the Japanese were a, a nation of imitators. We see this particularly in immediate post-war type scholarship. It's you know not only unfashionable but but you know factually incorrect. to say it. Um, what I found so fascinating as I delve deeper into these different you know layers of my of my book is that, for instance, Moriari Nordi wasn't just addressing uh, fellow scholars or or, or making appeals. To intellectuals he didn't know. He was, in fact, um, a correspondent with Herbert Spencer. And in the case of Isawa Shuji, who started out his career, um, he was a, a, a young student who uh, learned about visible speech, and I think it was uh, the World Expo in Philadelphia. I'm forgetting my own, you know, it's in the book. Uh, in any case, he had great difficulty speaking English without uh, Japanese accent getting in the way. And when he learned that visible speech was a method of phonetic notation that was supposed to uh, help the speaker articulate, uh, in other words, locate correctly uh, through the placement of the tongue or the or, or the, or the, um, uh, the mouth how to pronounce words correctly, he uh, was so impressed. This was originally, I'm getting ahead of myself, it was a system invented by Alexander Melville Bell to aid, for instance, uh, the deaf or the deaf and dumb who who had never heard speech correctly. And therefore it would help them to overcome their uh, disability.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so Isawa figured if it can help them, it can help me. And he actually sought out Alexander Graham Bell. This is before Bell invents the telephone, both, uh, Melville Bell and Graham Bell were both educators working with the deaf. And um, as a result, Isawa sort of struck a bargain with Graham Bell that he would, I guess, teach him some Japanese in exchange for learning visible speech. So it became a lifelong uh, passion of Isawa's that he um, adapted visible speech to Japanese And as I detail in that chapter, he really saw it as a system, an experimental script, but a system that could help Imperial Japan mediate between Japanese language and the different languages that were coming into the fold of the Japanese empire Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to Taiwan first. He made an appeal to the first governor general of Taiwan to um, allow him to be uh, in charge of, um, setting the educational policy for this new colony. And it, his, his proposals were accepted. Incidentally, his own brother went on to become the third governor general of Taiwan. But, um, on the one hand, I sh- I mean, I should point this out. Visible speech was always a kind of marginal peripheral kind of thing. It wasn't, uh, widely adopted in English. It was more or less an outright failure. Um, In Japanese, it had a little bit more success due to Isawa, but my interest in this was not because it became widely adopted or something like that, but because one, it offered a kind of counterpoint, an alternative experimental phonetic script to shorthand. Mm -hmm. So it belongs to that same history of of old and dead and even failed media. But it also uh, really speaks to the discursive uh, moment that uh, was taking place during this period. So, um, Taksari Koki, who was a uh, adapter of shorthand in in Japan, Isawa, um, you know, and so on. There are many, many figures like this who were really um, not just. Uh, um, I want to say they weren't just sort of footnotes to history, but really, it turns out have a lot to say about what um, Japanese modernity would look like, particularly when we talk about things like the materiality of writing, the reform of modern Japanese language. And ultimately, I mean, the arc of my book heads in that direction of the origins and development of modern Japanese literature. And in particular, I'm thinking about prose fiction, but I also talk a little bit about the major poet Masaoka Shiki, who had his own sort of uh, uh, idiosyncratic take on some of these kind of, um, you know, reforms. Mm
1: -hmm. This actually leads us really nicely into part three and then part four of the book. Oh, good. Um, Yeah, this is great. So thanks for that transition. Um, And before we get there, I'll just mark that um, it's probably obvious to listeners at this point, but you talked about the importance of um, this idea of visible speech in terms of its... um, use potentially and actually for instruction for the deaf, disabled, and as you call it, dialectically disadvantaged, and also in colonial context. So there are really interesting ways that might not be completely obvious um, to readers who pick up the book and look at the cover and, like, flip through it. Yeah. Um, ways that this story really speaks to disability studies and um, also um, colonial studies, studies of empire, and really interesting ways in Chapter 6 is one of the kind of key moments where that's happening.
0: Thank you. Let me jump in, if I may, just to make a very sure. quick point. It's not something that's detailed in the book, but um, Isawa struck up a partnership with uh, one of his teachers in uh, the United States who uh, he would bring to Japan, and um, I want to say his name is Luther we- uh, Whiting Mason. I may be pronouncing his name wrong uh, as well. This that's is live. You're
1: in good company. That's yeah.
0: okay. We're, so we're, we're doing this live. Um <laughs> But in any case, um, I believe it was Mason, if I'm getting the name right, that was um, responsible for introducing musical notation Mm -hmm. to Japan, as well as things like uh, uh, patriotic school songs that would be sung by the students. Um, So musical notation also is part of that mix. It's not something that I could find um, really a place for in my book, but hopefully someone else Perhaps listening to this podcast will be inspired to uh, to, to delve further. Right. So there there are all kinds of fascinating connections. and They all you know kind of cluster around these notions of of, uh, of notation and materiality of writing.
1: That's right, and sort of and an attentiveness to, to music and song and, and the sonic and voicing is actually, I mean, that's happening throughout the book, right, in, in different ways, some explicit, some implicit. So there's a lot of attentiveness, I think, to that throughout the chapters, and this is a really interesting moment. Yeah. So as we move to part three, I um, mean, there are two more parts of the book, and we're going to get to the cat, I promise, um, I promise. So part three of the book looks at, in the words of the book, the emergence of the unified style and transcript of realism via phonetic shorthand. Now there's a lot of really interesting case studies happening um, in the chapters here, and what I'm going to do is just ask you to talk about um, kind of one moment, and this is a moment in Chapter 8 where you talk about what you call the haunted origins of modern Japanese literature. So Chapter 8 looks in particular at three canonical texts from modern Japanese literature, and it uses these texts to raise some important kind of points and questions and issues about the ways that shorthand is contributing to the development of modern Japanese literature, of prose writing, and also specifically of vernacular writing. So I would like to just invite you, whether you want to talk about the peony lantern, essence of the novel, floating clouds, whatever you'd like to do to address this, to talk a little bit about um, what you take to be most important for us to understand, again, about the ways here that shorthand is um, kind of helping produce aspects of the modern Japanese novel, phonetic transparency, mimetic realism, and perhaps what's going on with vernacular in this context.
0: Yeah, boy, it's a lot to to bite off. So yeah, let me so, try. So don't
1: worry about being you know comprehensive. Just sort of like <laughs> maybe what you think is maybe a, a moment that
0: let me let me try to be really. Um make make a really short comment, and then maybe you can follow up and and cool. kind of steer me so I don't get lost in an cool. endless digression the okay so all three of those texts are absolutely canonical, as you said pivotal. Anyone who's studying modern Japanese literature from the Meiji period encounters them um, the least perhaps the least often mentioned at least up to the point where um, my book has come out. Hopefully, I can uh, you know change that a bit. Is the peony lantern, which was originally um, in the Meiji period, at least it was originally um, a story told live at the theater at these um, small I, I, vaudeville isn't really a good translation, but um, what were called yose theaters, small, very informal theaters, in contrast to say the big, expensive productions of kabuki, which dominated um, you know, the, the the theatrical world of of Tokyo. Um so so um in the genre of Rakugo, a, a storyteller would sit on a cushion. It was a very minimalistic enterprise. He would have maybe a glass of water and a and a fan, and those were the only props, and he would tell stories, sometimes comics, sometimes uh ghost stories. So the ghost story of the Peony Lantern was a story that was not original. It was itself a retelling of a Chinese tale. So there are many layers to this uh, haunted origin, as I as I repeat throughout the chapter. And um, Encho tsu Encho was probably the most popular rakugo storyteller of his age. He's in fact often looked back to as sort of the father of modern rakugo. In any case, um, following the prohibitions on Recording political speech, particularly uh, by the People's Rights Movement, um, the shorthand reporters were looking for an opportunity to prove the worth of this new uh, recording system that they had, and they needed to find something, you know, ostensibly apolitical, and they turned to rakugo as their um, as their key. So, um, two of the shorthand reporters came to and chose performances, and transcribed it. And then it was published in a kind of serialized pamphlet. And it was very, very popular. And it was in the production of that, well, let's call it literary style, Mm -hmm. in the transcription of, of live speech, that this new generation of aspiring writers, they were looking to examples of Western literature and wanting to create their own uh, equivalents, you know, to create a modern Japanese literature. And they saw what many of them perceived for the first time to be a viable form of, uh, you know, what we would think of today as vernacular speech. Now, they recognized that this was an utterly artificial production. Many, many writers were still... um, strongly wedded to the notion of using um, classical uh, uh, diction and grammar and so forth. Um, this What I call the unified style is my translation, my attempt at demystifying the Japanese term genbun ichi, which literally means unification of speech and writing. Now, I call it unified style in part to emphasize the fact that it was, in fact, a written style and not uh, some kind of, um, you know, uh, spoken dialect, which it it absolutely was not. Um, Nor was it literally, you know, the unification of speech and writing. It was a a kind of approximation of the very polished storytelling into the uh, sort of middle class, uh, middle class is the wrong word, but like middle of the road samurai dialect of the Fukugawa region of Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So, uh, different authors, including the, uh, literary theorist Tsuboichi Shoyo wrote a preface to the, um, published sort of book version of the Peony Lantern really praised the, the work as, uh, leading the way towards some new kind of literary, um, expression. And so, um, that really constitutes the starting point for all of these experiments with shorthand to converge into a new kind of realism. So what do I mean by that? Well, one of the shorthand writers, uh, Wakabayashi Kanzo, also has a preface, and he says things like when um when Endo laughed, my words laugh when you know, when Encho when cries, the words cry. And so there's a kind of almost hallucinatory verisimilitude that he's somehow capturing the um, absolute sort of instant of the, the verbal utterance in writing. And so when you read it, it's like you were really there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is meant to substitute for, you know, the variety of um, word image relations that it used to obtain in Japanese literature of the Tokugawa period. So you would have illustrated books, and instead of having some, let's say, elaborate description of someone's psychological state, uh, you know, to give a kind of comical, radical example, perhaps in lieu of making the uh, sketching the villain's head, he would have the character for evil in, uh, written on his face, or in lieu of a face. Mm-hmm. So you know who the bad guy is. Um, in lieu of uh, some kind of minute description of the interior of a room, you would simply have an illustration of the inside of the room. So those kind of word-image relations, which of course have all kinds of puns and uh, word plays and so forth as well, somewhat obviated the kinds of realistic, psychologically or mimetically realistic descriptions that we associate with the... Uh, you know, modern Western novel. And so In Peony Lantern was one of the first steps towards creating a kind of vernacular, literary style that was the vehicle for this. I hope that wasn't too... Awesome.
1: No, that was awesome. And it also gives, um, you're raising a couple of issues that let me at least touch on um, one of my favorite chapters that we're not going to have time to talk about in any detail, but that I want to at least just mention. I mean, you talked about sketching. Um, and a lot of what you said relates not just to image and text, but specifically body and text, right? The sort of the head, the face, um, the the words. And this is very much um, kind of of a piece with some of what's happening in Chapter 9. This is the first of two chapters in the fourth part of the book, The Limits of Realism. Mm-hmm. So I'll just mark this for listeners. Should, um, should
0: we just maybe add one little oh, uh, yeah. addendum to that? Add I whatever I guess, you like, Right. So the bigger picture here, right, is that going back to figures like Benedict Anderson, who in his seminal book, Imagined Communities, talks of the newspaper and the novel to the rise of the modern nation state.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That, you, you know, in contrast to pre-modern societies with their use of classical languages, um, religious or otherwise, that sort of bind them in other ways. As a sort of broad, sprawling community, we have the rise of vernacular languages, you know, uh, sort of modern Italian or modern English, uh, Russian, what have you, that are meant to be, uh, again, you know, written as they're spoken, spoken as they're written, and that are the sort of universal um, operating system of the nation. And the, the, the newspaper and its day to day reporting. And the novel in its capacity to imagine the inner psychic life of the, of the people, uh, et cetera, et cetera, their aspirations, fears, hopes, and so forth, um, really capture the essence of the modern nation. Right? So the project of creating a modern literature is not just something of like art for art's sake, but is integral to this um, you know, nationalist uh, movement that's taking place all over the world.
1: Great, thank you. Thank you. So as we move um, to the fourth part of the book, and this is really yeah. going to take us to our conclusion, um, again, uh, just to kind of echo what I was saying before, the ninth chapter looks really closely at the writings um, by somebody named Masaoka Shiki. Now he yes. becomes really, really interesting in part because of a process that you call literary sketching in prose, um, which he is practicing and also... He becomes really interesting um, in part because of the story of how his writing and his practice and his body, both in sickness and in health, um, kind of becomes constellated with, really with all kinds of issues that, again, bring us back to this connectedness of word and body and image. There's a photograph of him. Um, This is where the, the... cherry blossoms come in that I mentioned at the very beginning, it's a really beautiful chapter that looks at life and death of a particular figure who is embodying this practice of writing. So actually before we move on from from him, just super briefly, um, what do we need to know about what you think is important about this practice of literary sketching?
0: Okay, so literary sketching was a kind of um, experiment that Shiki started he was he's best known as a poet who uh, the i should say the poet who um coined the term haiku for sort of you know standalone poems of uh, five seven five uh, meter and unlike the haikai of the preview of the tokugawa period, he um wanted these poems to be quite different that while they could still use some of the classic tropes, um, seasonal words, um, the cutting word and so forth. Uh, so he was still abiding by many of the old rules, but rather than being a kind of linked verse that had to go from one person to another, it could be uh, a kind of standalone work by an individual poet. And Shiki had all kinds of reformist ideas. He, um, In the context of haiku, he really wanted to introduce a kind of realism that that you could describe things that you actually saw rather than simply making reference to the platonic ideals of the classical precedents. So rather than describe the, you know, sort of ideal pine tree uh, covered in snow, you would describe the actual pine tree in your backyard. And Shiki had all kinds of Really fascinating polemics. He was, um, he's lying on his side in that photo because he was dying of tuberculosis. He could barely, uh, stand up, um, at the, at the point at which that photo was taken. And there's a rag, rather poignant, um, poem he writes to that effect where, you know, he's thinking about the cherry blossoms that have been cut and are in the vase. You know, their beauty is sort of, uh, transient and, and will, you know, will die. And he's thinking about his own mortality, too. But um, Shiki was really a relentless experimenter with language. And literary sketching, he he made one abortive attempt at a novel. It didn't work, and he never went back to it as a form. But literary sketching was a form of prose, very short vignettes, where, again, unable to get up, unable to move around, he was really looking out the window uh, at the garden, Um, and just making simple observations about things around him. And yet, he used the unified style. He uh, continued to advocate that catchphrase, you know, write things down just as they are. So a kind of relentless objectivity. And it became a template for other writers who were experimenting with mimetic realism and so forth. Some of the writers would go on to be known as naturalists, that they uh, adopted literary sketching as a critical stage in their own uh, development. I mean, there really was no template for them to follow um, prior to this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for instance, the author Shimazaki Toson wrote a book called Sketches of Chikuma River. And it's just an entire book of these somewhat lyrical, but, you know, prose uh, uh, observations of nature in uh, central Japan, the Japan Alps area. And uh, tōson uh, would go on to write uh, a number of very important novels uh, for um, the Meiji era. The most famous, I think, is uh, The Broken Commandment. Um, but in any case, Shiki was someone who just kept experimenting with different forms of language. Literary sketching was not um, sort of intended as the end point of a logical progression of ideas. But he had a friend um, who was an artist who introduced him to ideas of sketching that had been learned from this fellow Fontanese. So you look at um, an image, you look at an object, and you try to create a focal point, right? And um, things outside of the focal point are progressively more blurry and so forth. And Shiki tried to adapt Those ideas, as well, to um, to language. (laughs) So you know, it's not simply that we have a a kind of linear progression from shorthand, but also that there are these fascinating connections with uh, art. (laughs) Okay. And um, Shiki was one of the pivotal figures for that. Sadly, you know, he passed away as a a very young man and wasn't able to, uh, you know, see the fruition of some of these ideas.
1: Thank you. Now, I I can't let you go before asking you a final question before we come to our conclusion, because we have to talk about the cat. We have to talk about the cat. Okay, so chapter 10, the final chapter in the book, looks very closely at Soseki's I am a cat. This was composed 1904 to 1906. Mm -hmm. And you situate this work in the chapter within the larger context of the unified style as it shaped the modern novel. The book calls this work by Soseki the apotheosis of the unified style in the modern novel and its most compelling critique Right at the same time. So here uh, we have Soseki evoking what you refer to as the limitations of representation, of transmission, and of recording through the figure of a cat. There are also noses, but I'm not going to ask you to talk about noses. I will just say for listeners, look in chapter 10 and you will find noses. But we are going to talk about the cat, and so here is my final question before we conclude, Seth: sure. What is going on with the record scratching cat? Okay. That is my question. So there's Explain a lot of record scratching cat briefly for us.
0: Right. There's a lot of juvenile nasal humor uh, in 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 the other part of that chapter, but we won't we won't but get we into. We won't it.
1: talk about noses because we got to right. leave some mystery for the listeners. Right. Absolutely. Sure.
0: Um, you know, it's it's. it's um, Often the case that writers, you know, start out writing fairly tepid works that are imitative of others. You know, they, they, they work through the template, as I was just saying, and then they go on to find their voice and become sort of more radical. Um, certainly, Soseki was also an endless experimenter. He and Shiki were uh, very close friends. But in some ways, Soseki's most radical work was his first Uh Not literally the very first thing you ever wrote, but the first major success, um, which is I am a cat. Now, it's funny because when I was writing, uh, doing research for the dissertation, you know, and I was in Japan and people would always ask you, oh, what are you working on? And I would get tired of trying to explain all of the sprawling ideas about media. And I, I was even more tired of trying to explain why shorthand was a sexy idea that everybody should be really excited about. So sometimes I would just say as a shorthand answer to the question oh I'm working on soseki's I am a cat. Mm-hmm. And people would look really disappointed, you know, kind of crestfallen, uh, as if they as if I had just revealed that I was, you know, a bit simple. And the reason for that is that most people in Japan would read I am a cat when they were kids. They would read it, you know, like in elementary school and it was read them, rather like, let's say, Gulliver's Travels would be read to American or, or um, Canadian or British kids as a kind of a children's story, something comical and simple. And uh, as a result, I think most people commonsensically not having read it as an adult in a kind of, um, you know, uh, structured li- uh, uh, literary environment, they just assume that there wasn't much to it. But in fact, this novel uh, it is incredibly funny, and there are some—you know—there is, you know, juvenile humor and 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 puns and things like that. Um, you also have this um, cat narrator who's sarcastic and petty, <laughs> and, and of course very relatable. Um, but the the novel really is a kind of omnibus of all of these different forms of media, of language experiments, and it's very parodic of the. Broader project of Meiji enlightenment, um, civilization and enlightenment, as the phrase usually goes, Bunmei Kaika" in Japanese. So, um, what I what I propose in that chapter, I call I call the cat uh, the record scratching cat, using this kind of uh, hip hop reference, not to suggest that he's a, a, a you know a turntablist or a DJ or something, but that the cat is not speaking the text, as other scholars have proposed, but is really something of an amanuensis. The cat is writing things down. And I pull out passages from the book that very clearly state that. Um, So what's interesting, and just to give one example, uh, maybe not the the funniest example, but one that I think is revelatory of what the project is, Um, the cat is adopted by a teacher whose name is uh, an English master, uh, Sneeze. Uh, Again, a a nose joke.
1: But we're leaving mystery.
0: All right, leaving mystery. So this teacher sets out to create a um, artistic sketch of the cat, and he's uh, uh, Master Sneeze is sort of a bumbling uh, dope, and everything that he does artistically is a failure, which is part of the humor of the text. The cat looks at. The sketch. He says, "You know, I don't consider myself uh, a great masterpiece uh, as cats go, but you know, looking objectively at this picture, you can't tell if the cat is sleeping or if the cat is blind." So he thinks of the the, the sketch as a failure. Well, what does this mean? You know, beyond the surface, um, he's pointing out that the failure of this kind of objectivity is that you can't tell. If something, you know, for instance, is the cat sleeping because his eyes are closed? Or is the cat blind because it looks like the cat maybe has no eyes? Mm-hmm. The limitations of this kind of objectivity um, didn't work for Soseki. And even though it was something that was pioneered by his very close, very dear friend Masoka Shiki, um, Soseki was very critical of the limitations of this literary language and, indeed, the limitations of what we think of as, um, you know, the, the, the truth of realism. So, very much like his own uh, um, hero, Lawrence Stern, in this novel, Soseki is bending language, he's twisting it, he's unscrewing it. Or, if, you know, we could use a, a post-structuralist term, deconstructing language. Right, And the cat is his uh, uh, medium or, or his vehicle for accomplishing so much of that. So, the record scratching cat.
1: The record scratching cat. Thank you so much, Seth. Now, even though we did, as promised, get to the cat, there's a million, billion things that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? There's a ton of stuff um, in the book that is waiting for listeners who become readers, including but not limited to the noses. But given that, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners who haven't yet become readers that we didn't have a chance to talk about?
0: Well, I'd strongly recommend that they get the book.
1: Good advice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. And now that the book is out for them to get, and congratulations on what I hope is obvious, um, is a really interesting and stimulating book. What's next for you? What are you currently working on? And what's to you these days?
0: Well, again, thank you for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk, and um, I think in some ways you've more cogently summarized the chapters than I did. So I wish I could go back and change the wording here or there. But um, my my next project is about the Japanese immigration to Brazil,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which begins in 1908, and I'm looking at it up until uh, 1941 when you know the uh, when World War II ends that that immigration. So the Japanese uh, presence in South America, this was the largest community outside of Japan, Um, trying to think somewhat outside of the box of Japanese imperialism in East Asia. So how does immigration contribute to um, a larger discourse of expansionism? So imperialism and immigration are sort of pillars of expansionism looking at how Japanese culture uh, is transplanted into the tropics in Brazil, how the Japanese helped contribute to the rise of Sao Paulo as a mega city. There's just a lot of really fascinating things. So it's a very different project. A very different skill set from the previous book, but something I'm very excited about and um, I'm currently working on. So hopefully I'll be able to come back and talk to you maybe in about a year's time about that one.
1: Absolutely. Consider yourself with an open invitation. And in the meantime, thanks very much for taking time out of that work to talk to me about this one. It's really been a pleasure and congrats on an awesome book.
0: Thank you again. very much appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.